This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the Sports Ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on an argument or concept in the philosophy of sport literature. We will look at classic, discipline-defining articles, exciting, newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information, at sportsethicist.com. The Examine Sport episodes so far have focused on mostly theoretical issues. What is sport? Or do rules define sport? Well, today's episode takes a look at more specific issues within sport. The intentional foul, sometimes called the professional foul or the good foul. These are fouls or penalties committed by a player on purpose to gain some competitive advantage. Although such fouls are intentional violations of the rules of the sport, they are distinct from cheating and they are typically considered uncontroversial within the sport itself. Indeed, being called a quote, good foul, suggests that such fouls are unproblematic, posing no ethical concerns. Now, one of the first philosophers to raise a concern about the quote, good foul, was Warren Frawley in his 1982 article, Why the Good Foul is Not Good. This short article, it's only two pages, published in the Journal of Physical Education, Recreation, and Dance, argues, as the title clearly says, that the fouls we call good fouls are not actually good. Now, before looking at the argument, a few words on the author. Dr. Farley is a professor emeritus at the College of Brockport, State University of New York, and he's an important figure in the philosophy of sport. He's one of the founders of the International Association for the Philosophy of Sport and was instrumental in helping to build the philosophy of sport into a distinct academic discipline. Appropriately, since so much of his work has influenced the field, the Distinguished Scholar Award of the International Association for the Philosophy of Sport is named after him. Okay, on to the argument. Now, Farley starts by presenting the function of rules in a sport contest. First, Rules define the, quote, positively prescribed skills and tactics of the contest. These are the actions that all players of the game are either permitted or required to perform within the game. They are, in some sense, necessary for the game. Dribbling in basketball, stealing second in baseball, or the forward pass in football. The second function of the rules is that it identifies the pre-losery goal. If you recall from previous episodes, the pre-losery goal is Suits' term for the goal of the game that can be described independently of the game itself. For example, the position of the king on a chessboard, uh, the crossing of a specific point or line in a foot race. This goal is what the rules are aimed at. The pre-losery goal is what we are trying to do, and the prescriptive rules tell us what we are permitted or required to do in order to achieve this goal. The test of sport is how well we are able to achieve this goal within the confines of the rules. A third function of the rules is that they tell the participants what is not permitted, what sorts of actions are expressly prohibited. For example, double dribbling in basketball, tripping in hockey, using hands in soccer if you're not the goalie in a certain position of the field. Now, Farley writes, 
together the prelusory goal of basketball and the positively prescribed skills and tactics as stated in the rules are agreed upon by all participants when they agree to play basketball. Now there are two key aspects in this quote to call out. First, the rules along with the goal define the game. That is, they constitute, create what it is to play the game. That's what it is to play basketball, is to agree to play by these sets of rules to try to achieve a certain kind of goal. Second, this is agreed upon by all participants. The players agree to this set of constitutive rules. All the participants know and expect the other participants to know what is prohibited, what is permitted, and required by the rules. Now, Farley also tells us that, quote, the three functions of the rules operate together to ensure that all participants face the same test mutually, end quote. So if one is not operating accord, according to agreed upon rules, the participants are not facing the same test. They are not contesting. In other words, this sort of failure destroys the game. Now, for regular listeners, this should sound familiar. It's a version of the kind of formulism discussed in previous episodes. The rules make the game, and violating the rules renders the game a failure. Now, it shouldn't be too hard to see where Frale is going to go with his argument here. Good fouls, by definition, are violation of the rules. Thus, they can't be good in terms of the game, since rule violations render the game itself a failure. Now, before we get there, we have one more set of distinctions to make. There are different ways rules can be violated within a contest, and these can affect the contest in different ways. First, violations can be accidental or inadvertent. An accidental handball in soccer or a slip on the ice that leads to a tripping in hockey. While such violations temporarily disrupt the contest, they do not, quote, destroy their agreed-upon mutual test of entering participants, end quote. So Farley doesn't present an argument here why accidental violations don't uh, destroy the game, but it seems like his view is that because of the accidental nature of the disruption, the contest is still a mutually agreed-upon affair. That is, the players are not trying to gain an advantage or benefit by the action. It's an accident. So one party is not choosing a mutually agreed-upon prohibited action. It's just something that happens. The penalty is assessed, and the game continues. Now the second category of rule violations are intentional. And these kinds, that in this second category, are knowingly and necessarily deceptively committed to gain an advantage. This is what most would call cheating violating a rule while pretending to be playing by the rules. The deception is necessary because the whole point is that one is trying to get away with something, trying to make it look like they're doing A, but really they're doing B. And moreover, if this deception fails, one doesn't get away with the action and the advantage is not gained. The advantage gained by the deception, by the rule violation, only comes about if one gets away with it, if the deception succeeds. Now, this rule violation, Frale says, is, quote, deliberate disruption of the agreed-upon mutual test, end quote, and it destroys the good sports contest, right? Cheaters never win, and winners never cheat. 
Right? We've all heard that growing up. And this is, on this view, true because to cheat means you are not competing. And if you are not competing, you by definition cannot win. So cheating destroys the contest. Now the third kind of, uh, of rule violation is also intentional, but it's not deceptive. Indeed, part of the point of this violation is that one expects to get caught and penalized. Take the intentional foul in basketball. This is a tactic at the end of close games in order for the losing team to stop the clock and get possession back after the opposing team takes its free throws. It only works if the foul is called. So not only is the penalty expected in this case, it's desired. Now these quote good fouls are often regarded as prudent tactics for players or teams. The penalty that is assessed for the foul is seen as better than the alternative consequence if one hadn't committed the foul. For example, from the point of view of the defense in the football game, a pass interference penalty is preferable to a short touchdown. You'd rather take the spot penalty than just give up the six points. Now, such fouls are commonplace and expected by participants and fans, so much so that sometimes not engaging in such fouls can lead to criticism of the player, coach, or manager uh, for not uh, uh, doing this tactic. My students, when we talk about this in class, are often surprised that this is even a moral issue. Many don't like the intentional foul, mostly for aesthetic or pragmatic reasons. It can lengthen games or it's not fun to watch. But few raise ethical objections. Now, Frale does, and his argument is that the good, quote, the good foul necessarily detracts from the good sports contests, contest precisely because it changes the nature of the test being faced by all participants without clear agreement in principle that the test change is being agreed upon, end quote. The foul consists in actions that are explicitly prohibited by the rules. It might appear prudent for the player to engage in them, but to do so means doing things the rules have explicitly stated are not part of the game. Thus, argues Farley, to allow such violations to become an acceptable, acceptable tactic is to change the nature of the game and to violate the agreement at the heart of the contest. Farley also says, quote, The good foul is a violation of the agreement which all participants know that all participants make when they agree to play basketball, namely, that all will pursue the pre-losery goal of basketball by the necessary and allowable skills and tactics and will avoid use of prohibited skills and tactics, end quote. Now, merely changing the game is not itself wrong. Games change. They evolve. We add the 24-second clock to basketball. We added the forward pass in football and so on. We've introduced rules about uh, officiating for uh, replay and things like that. Games change. But these changes occur through additions to the rules, not by ignoring the rules. Frale is objecting to these sorts of intentional, tactical, strategic fouls because they change the nature of the game without agreement from all participants. And such agreement cannot be had, argues Frale, without the rules being changed in explicit ways. Right? He says... Quote, until such acts are established as agreement in principle by the positively prescribed rules and tactics, it cannot be stated unequivocally that all participants agree. 
In sum, Frale is arguing that the rules tell us what the game is and how to play it and how not to play it. When we agree to play the game, we agree to these rules. To then allow non-accidental violations of the agreed-upon rules undermines and detracts from the game. Now, Frale anticipates an objection here uh, based on the idea that if the dominant way of playing basketball involves the intentional foul as a conventionally accepted tactic, then there is a sense in which there is agreement to allow the tactic, right? Everybody sort of, maybe not everybody, but you know, the people on the basketball court, this is the way they've been brought up to play basketball, this is the way they're coached, this is expected by the refs, this is expected by the fans. In some sense, we might think there's a conventionally implicitly implicit agreement to accept this as a possible tactic. Now, we'll explore this objection in, few, in later episodes when we, when we look at, at uh, 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 folks who, who make this objection in a more full-blown way. But the basic idea is that if the culture of the sport, the ethos, allows the category of violations, then there is an implicit agreement beyond the explicit rules. Think of D'Agostino's argument discussed in previous episodes about the ethos of sport. Now, Frale's quick response to this is that we can't assume that agreement or the mutual understanding. He says, quote, agreeing to play basketball does not necessarily mean agreeing to perform the good foul, but it is necessarily, it do, but, it, it, but it necessarily entails the meaning of performing acts of dribbling, shooting, passing, and so on. Right, so we know that if you agree to play basketball, you have agreed to dribble the ball, shoot the ball at the net, pass the teammates, and other necessary features of basketball. We know this because they are part of the rules. A foul is not a necessary skill of basketball. One can play a game of basketball without any fouls, inadvertent or intentional. And since it's not, a nece since it's not necessary to the game, and it's not permitted by the rules, we can't assume that all participants agree to this convention of allowing this tactic. And for Frale, that's sufficient to undermine the mutuality of the contest. Now, a last concern not discussed in the article, but worth thinking about, is to what extent we ever get this mutuality. That is, do we ever get agreement by all participants to the same interpretation understanding of the rules? Now, Frale's two-page article ignites uh, a long-running debate in the philosophy of sport about the ethics of the intentional foul, and we'll look at several of those articles in later episodes. Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show on iTunes, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist at gmail.com. Thank you.